welcome to today's Candid Conversations with myself, Dr. Linny Telford, and my guests, Patsy and Tony. Today, we are turning our attention to the experience of something that 16 to 89% of all intensive care units, or ICU, patients develop, and that is ICU delirium. ICU delirium can impact cognitive and physical function, perceptions, and social behaviours. This can include, but is not limited to, a host of symptoms such as a lack of cooperation, alterations in communication, changes in mood and attitude, and visual hallucinations. Today, we talk with Patsy and her husband, Tony, about Patsy's lived experience of developing ICU delirium and the days that followed the onset of her difficulties. Patsy and Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Patsy, I wonder if you'd like to start by explaining your experience of ICU delirium. I had been admitted to ICU and had been in there, I think it was for about three days, although I can't really remember anything much about the experience. And when I came out of the IC and was placed on another ward, I began to realise that I wasn't seeing the world as I would expect it. I knew I was in a hospital, but somehow the hospital, instead of being on the edge of town, was now under the pier on the front of the town. And the staff were busy putting it all together, ready for people to come in and and look at it. So I could see that actually they were a troop of travelling actors and they weren't real nursing staff at all. This became so real that I phoned my husband and asked him not to speak to any of the staff before coming to see me so that I could alert him to this bizarre situation. Deliriums came along including poisonous animals in a museum who could kill at one bite or sting. The troubles in Northern Ireland, where I was gun running in farms along the border. Really peculiar episodes, which seemed so real that I couldn't distinguish them from real life. I was convinced they'd built a railway station at the end of the ward, and that I had to go and help a nurse with one of her children uh, to look after them while she was working and became very agitated because I couldn't get to the station because I couldn't physically manage it. In between times, I was on the ward doing things, um, having meals, washing myself, all this sort of thing, sort of normal life really, with these terrifying episodes most of which had some element of danger in them. Added to this, for the first few days, I didn't trust my family, and I was convinced that they were trying to have me done away with. And after that, when I did become to trust them, I didn't trust the nursing staff and didn't take any notice of their advice or comments. I think I was probably quite difficult. They seemed to think I had dementia and started doing the dementia tests to see how far down the road I was. I managed to pass these tests because I wasn't hallucinating at that particular point. But it was a very, very frightening experience and completely real. And Tony, when it sounds like Patsy contacted you to explain her predicament and situation, what was it like getting her phone call? Uh, Very worrying because... 
she was telling me to be most cautious when I came in because they were all actors there and they were building a set and uh, there weren't any doctors there. Everybody, the nurses, staff, the doctors, everybody were actors playing their various roles and um, that I had to be very careful who I spoke to when I came in. She only come and speak to her. So when you went in and spoke to her, what did you notice? Um, she was sort of quite agitated, uh, looking around, uh, seeing who was listening, very cautious how she spoke, um, warning me quite regularly that they were all actors. So is, is, is she was there, but as though she felt she was in a completely different sort of place and it wasn't anything to do with the hospital at all. And she was being held captive there too. And so what was your response to seeing Patsy talk to you in a way that you hadn't seen her talk before? Cautious. Um, I had to try and reassure her from the beginning. But um, that actually backfired because then she started not to trust me. And started being careful what she was saying to me. So... Although I was cautious and tried to reassure her they were, say, oh, no, no, they're not. It's all all right. She was so convinced in her mind that they were actors and it was just uh, sort of a theatre group and they were building, they were building a set that, um, that it, she couldn't be convinced at all that mm. this wasn't actually going on. And I can hear that you were yourself being incredibly cautious and I just wonder what that was like for you as a husband. Uh, strange because up to then I've always had a confidence but I could see her confidence was shaken and the whole circumstances and I had the disadvantage of not actually knowing what psychosis was and how it affected you and I had to go and find out about it uh, outside of the hospital because nobody within the hospital was explaining anything to me. The only thing was that they said was that, um, oh, yes, people do act strangely sometimes when they come out of the unit. So I felt as though I was, I suppose, unprepared for it, and therefore having difficulty, difficulty dealing with it on the hoof. But I knew it wasn't right, and I had to be very careful not to totally upset her and alienate her uh, and not shatter her confidence in me. So it sounds like you kind of went on this journey then, because Patsy, you were describing that the delirium continued for you. It didn't stop at the point of ICU. It sounds like it continued for a few days. Yes, it did. I'm really not quite sure how long it continued for, because I would dip in and out of reality. So I think it might have been for about a couple of weeks. But even when I came home after the third week, I still had to check that the room was in the right place in the morning, that the windows and the doors were where I would expect them to be. And sometimes as I woke up, they moved themselves around and rearranged themselves into the right places. As though they'd been having a conversation in the middle of the room, realised I was awake and scrambled to the sides again. It was really very, very odd. That took a few weeks to disappear. But that was the last of the psychosis, um, hallucinations anyway. That, that was the last to disappear. And what was it like being in hospital with, with the delirium? Because I could hear you describing 
different parts of your experience. And I just wonder that you said you spoke with a number of medical professionals and you felt distrusting of them about how you therefore navigated treatments and interventions. Initially, the first, um, I would say perhaps half week, I didn't trust them at all in any way at all. So when the physio came to get me to do my exercises, I thought, why should I? You're only an actor and pretending. So I, I really didn't um, join in with his enthusiasm at all. Um, I began to realise that I had been in a delirious place. And so I did come to trust the staff and I, my behaviour returned to normal even though I was still having the hallucinations, whether I had them when I was asleep or awake, I really couldn't tell you. I I don't even know if the staff who were actors in my hallucinations were even aware that I was regarding them in a different light to what they thought they were. One nurse, I thought I was going to have to look after her children. So I was very anxious to tell her that I couldn't. And of course, she must have been completely bewildered because she hadn't asked me to anyway. So there were all sorts of odd things playing out that I wasn't aware of. um, But what did happen was that many of the hallucinations, particularly at night, were absolutely terrifying. There were more than one occasion I was convinced that whatever was happening in the hallucination, the poisonous animals, the gun running, that I was going to be killed. And it was really, really frightening because I revisited the same hallucination several times. And of course, I was even more fearful the second time I entered it. So it was a really disturbing and it's, it's really stayed with me since then. And did anything ever make you feel safer at all? The only thing um, that actually helped was when Tony visited me one day and I became convinced that we were sitting at the top of the wall um, at a table and chairs and that we were looking down at the floor and the beds underneath and that if we got up from these chairs, we would fall onto the patients below and hurt ourselves and them as well. So I said to him, you mustn't move off that chair. If you do, we're in terrible danger. You're going to fall. And he said, I'm not. We're on the floor. I said, we're not. We're not. We're absolutely up on the ceiling. It's really, really dangerous. You mustn't move. He said, look at the window. You know it runs parallel with the floor. I said, yes. He said, well, where is it? I said, oh, and I could see where the edge of the window was. And that was in the right place in my mind. And gradually, gradually, the room tilted and we were on the floor and I was orientated again. And he said to me, it will happen again, you know. And blow me, five minutes later, we're up on the ceiling again. But using his technique, I was able to get myself to the floor. And when it happened after he left, I was able to do it by myself and get myself back down to the floor. And that's, I think, when I started to realise 
just how much my mind had altered over this time. And I think that's when I really started perhaps to be able to cope with it and put the hallucinations into reality. Gradually, the animals in the museum became pet animals that people had dressed up. So, in fact, it was somebody's dog or somebody's cat in a funny costume. And it became um, less scary because of that. And I suppose that's the way my mind was starting to return to normality. And what was that like, beginning to develop what we might call insight into what was happening? Oh, it's difficult. It's really difficult to say because it was terrifying that it had happened. It was terrifying that it might happen again. I didn't know why it had happened. The nursing staff seemed convinced I was demented. Whatever my family told them, they seemed to be convinced that I was suffering from dementia. And I have to say that if I had been suffering from dementia, then they weren't incredibly helpful with that either. So um, I just became glad to get out of hospital and get away from it and get myself better um, away from the disturbance of the night. There was a habit of moving the beds around at night, changing all the patients. That wasn't delirium, that did happen. And it could be very disconcerting to wake up to find all the beds in the middle of the room being moved round into different places. Um, so once I got home and got some sleep, got some rest, I started to improve a lot. And was it something that you found easy to talk about and tell people? Yes, I did actually, because I was so oh, surprised, um, horrified by the experience. And, but to, to my surprise... People I told said, oh, yes, that happened to my sister, aunt, uncle, all sorts of people that had the same sort of experience. One friend's um, sister had had three weeks on holiday, apparently, when she returned from ICU and couldn't be persuaded otherwise. She even thought she'd learned a new language and had had actually enjoyed her experience. But it was quite rare. Most people had had quite frightening experiences. And what's it like looking back on that time now? It's still frightening. And the hallucinations now are as real to me as they were then. And also, I don't feel that I could convince the doctors that I didn't have dementia. And um, it's a nasty feeling to feel that you might might go down on your notes that you've got dementia when in fact you're as normal as the next 70 year old it sounds like you noticed a real power difference then at that time definitely almost a disinterest too one nurse I asked to help me down from a table which obviously I wasn't on so she might have been a bit surprised but there were a lot of elderly people on the ward and some of them did have dementia and so it shouldn't really have been a surprise if an elderly person wasn't quite aware of where they were and even given that they didn't seem to know what psychosis was they should have been more helpful in the the way that they addressed people. And Tony I was really struck by how you were saying you had to go away and do some research yourself 
Yeah, I was sort of told that people came down and they were a little strange when they came out of the unit. No explanation given what, why, how. And I knew something was wrong was Pats was saying about the situation around her, about the the actors, etc. So um, I started investigating online and I also found a video clip as well where a chap was a reporter explained it had happened to him and explained what it was about and how frightening it was. And then I managed to get some information from another hospital and um, some leaflets and explained even more about it. And I became very aware very quickly, although I'd spoken to the nursing staff about it and the house surgeon about it, they knew people came down and they were a little strange, but they didn't seem to know why, what it is. And be that it's not that uncommon, I was a little surprised. But having done it, I found myself far more able to deal with it and to reassure her and slowly to help her turn the corner. But if I hadn't have found the information, I don't quite know what I would have done. Were you able to talk with staff about your concerns and get support for Patsy? I was able to talk to staff and voice my concerns, but did I get support? No, not really, because the support would have been an explanation, not just they come down like this sometimes. Um, and when I got the information, I printed it off and took it back. Uh, the house surgeon gave me just said, yes, I know. And I thought, well, if you knew, why didn't you talk to me about it? So I felt, well, I know now, but a bit late. But uh, I feel if it happens again, or if I know somebody who's going through the thing, I feel as at least I can explain what it's about. Because dug up all sorts of bits about it since then. You come across things and you start to understand it more and more and more. And it's reassurance that people need. They don't want to be told what to do and told everything's all right, need to be reassured. Um, I don't think the staff, though they knew about it, they hadn't been really sufficiently trained to really deal with it. To be fair to the staff, they were under immense pressure. Some, some of the wards um, were running half-staffed, so they really didn't have the time. But it was clear they also didn't have the training. So when you look back at that time, what advice would you give yourselves now to support you through what sounds like a very frightening experience? Don't go into hospital. (laughs) (laughs) If you end up with somebody with that, it's to not tell them they're there, everything's all right, because they're there, everything isn't all right. It's to try and help the person through by talking to them what the situation is and trying to not demonstrate but actually reassure them that it's, how do I put it, it's not that it's all right because it's obviously not all right to them, but not that they're imagining it. But if they're in a situation, help them get out of that situation so they can realise that that situation has passed and it's not a dangerous situation as they imagined. Because quite often it appears it is a dangerous situation to them um, and they can't understand why they're in this dangerous situation and they need reassurance to help them steer themselves. They must steer themselves through.
and come to the conclusion that it's okay. It's not just telling them because that doesn't work. That's what um, some staff are doing. Say, oh, never mind, just sit down, you'll be all right, dear. That's no good. They've got to sort of steer them through it. Would you agree with that, Pat? Yes, I think when I was thought I was on a table and asked the nurse to help me down, um, it was clear that I wasn't wasn't in my right mind because she said, well, you are down. I said, I'm up here on a table. Mm. And she just looked puzzled and left me to it. If she had actually just taken my hand and said, there, you're down safely now, I would probably have believed her and felt reassured. But as it was, I didn't have help, so I thought. And um, you feel that you have to rely on yourself when you're in hospital. And you just have to get yourself through it. It, it's what it is is how to do it that's what i didn't know and nobody had the time or probably the experience uh to actually explain how to do it and for you patsy when you look back at that time what would have been helpful for your carers or family members to have done or to have known i think just the existence that this could possibly have happened i think if you'd been pre-warned um if tony had known in, in advance that this was a possibility or somebody had noticed it and told him and gi- given him information about it, that would have been helpful it, it, Be- because there's probably no right way to take anybody through this. But there is an empathetic way, I'm sure. And um, I, I didn't feel safe. And that seems to be a common theme when you hear other people talking about their experiences that they are very often in dangerous situations and so that they if you can feel safe it would probably limit the experience and is there anything that in particular you feel from you know having had a hospital admission that increases that sense of safety no I I didn't feel I could rely on staff to support me I, I I was afraid of being sectioned, really. I think if the information had been around and more forthcoming, some patient leaflets of some sort to give part of an explanation, it would have helped. But there wasn't anything readily available, and there wasn't a, somebody available, a uh, member of staff to talk to you about it. There was nobody from the intensive care unit because they were busy out there, or and there was no information out there that I was given. I didn't answer it, so I didn't realise that this is what the situation was at first. It was ignorance, wasn't it, that didn't help? Yeah. You know, with knowledge, you could at least look at other people's experiences and think, oh, yes, this is what happened. And hopefully other people have found helpful things too. But there was a feeling of being written off, really, um, particularly when Tony was called back into the hospital um, to make sure that he didn't want me resuscitated because I was extremely ill one night. Um, And he was told that I would be on tubes and immobile for the rest of my life, and he didn't want that, did he? And was talked into putting down do not resuscitate on my papers. And this felt really unprofessional and dismissive as though once you reach a certain age, you're more or less disposable. Really not a pleasant feeling. 
that the way it was put to me was quite uh, not a very helpful way. My wife was basically written off because she had a frame and they thought oh, she's old and she's suffering from dementia because that was part of the uh, thing she was actually suffering from. The hyponatremia gives you this sort of, makes you appear you are suffering dementia when you're not. It's just a part of your body, your body sorts are out of balance and you're not acting as you should do. But um, this was turned over later as being quite incorrect, but it was quite stressful. So is your sense that you both experienced ageism? Yes. Yes. I guess I'm really struck by, as you talk around, just power and difference and how at different points you've experienced being powerless when you were in hospital, both as a carer in terms of not being provided from your perspective with enough information. And then also in terms of you, Patsy, and your physical health journey and how maybe assessments were conducted you were quite fearful around being sectioned. It sounds like you were both quite vulnerable at times during, during you know, from the point of admission to discharge. Yes, you do. Yes. You do feel vulnerable. You, once the doctors have got a diagnosis and a treatment, that seems to be their, their, their reason for being there and they've achieved it. And the sort of the, the fallout from their care is not looked at at all and I guess as you're talking I'm just thinking about that sense of how power can or power differences can contribute to us sometimes feeling unsafe yes yes and about your descriptions of feeling unsafe in the context of delirium and how earlier you were saying actually there's not much you can do on a hospital to feel safe but I also hear in some of your descriptions what may have been helpful could have been for at least from your experience around staff having greater understanding of of delirium and yes. being transparent with you around what that is and what that might mean yes um, yes i don't think sorry but i don't think they always fully understood it themselves because it was the junior staff as explaining and that i don't think they were fully aware of what was going on themselves so it sounds like in order to create a safe environment, what you're identifying is actually there in some, at least in some wards or some localities, training around delirium may well have helped you in your instance, including skills that Tony, you, you found out through your wider reading from other hospitals to, to create that sense of safety and possibly reduce some of the symptoms or at least orientate you at different times. Yes, but I also think that it could be extended to dementia itself. Um, where if pa- patients are experiencing similar distress that I did, it would be exacerbated by the staff not having the knowledge of dealing with these sort of emotional disturbances. It's, it's The physical side can be looked after, but the emotional side is just as important. And it's also it's the time they need as well. As Patsy said earlier, they were under pressure these things have to be done very gently and carefully. Oh, I don't think they always have the time to be able to do it because they've got people sort of calling for help around them and it is a terrific pressure on them. And unless they've been well-trained and prepared and probably down from the unit themselves or trained by the unit themselves, they will find it incredibly difficult to deal with. So 
what do you think and feel about in terms of if there were ever a need for a future admission? I'd be frightened. And I'd be wary right from the start. So what would be your advice for other families who are going through a similar experience? Try and ask questions. If you can't get answers, see if you can do some research. If you can get on the internet, that's always a useful tool. Um, And acquire the information yourselves if it's not readily available. Listen to the person that's in the hospital. Because whatever they're telling you, it's their lived experience. Um, And it's the truest one that you'll hear. Thank you, Patsy and Tony. And at that point, we'll leave you there. But we really are grateful for the time you've taken to share such a personal account of what sounds an incredibly challenging time. If you, as a listener, have been affected or touched by what you've heard, please do reach out to your local health care provider. There are also some excellent charities, for example, icustepps.org, who can provide some form of support. In addition, other formal clinical websites may be of help to you, for example, the Royal College of Psychiatry. If you like what you've heard today, please do like the podcast and also check out the other podcasts. I'll be regularly uploading candid conversations about mental health with a range of people from a range of backgrounds. Also, you can follow me, The Virtual Psychologist, on Instagram and Twitter. I look forward to seeing you all again soon.